If you would remain standing this morning and turn, if you have a copy of God's Word before you, uh, to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, and we will be considering together uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 this morning, and yet, uh, for the sake of just a little bit of context, I want us to step back and start reading at verse 18 of chapter 5. But even with that, I want to give you a little more context, because this text that we are considering this morning is part of an extended argument that the Apostle Paul has been making. And it's very important to situate it in the context of that argument, because the Apostle Paul has been arguing up to this point in the book of Romans really for one chief belief, one chief doctrine of the apostolic truth of the gospel. That is that believers are justified before God by faith alone. That has been his point all the way through the book of Romans up to this point in a very real sense. And now, in chapter 5, he has been expanding upon that. Indeed, we even read from our assurance of pardon earlier from chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He goes on to explain to us how that has taken place. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man, that being Adam, so the grace of God has come into the world through another man, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who took upon flesh for us. And then he continues to explain this doctrine in greater detail. And we're going to pick, therefore, up at verse 18 as he's discussing justification, which means being counted righteous before God, and how that relates to grace and to the law. Listen with me, if you will, to the Word of God, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 6. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore, or rather, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of our God. You may be seated. Now let us pray once again as we approach God's word to consider this morning that he would bless us as we do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your holy word. We praise you, O Lord, that you have not left us rudderless in this world, but that you have given to us directions. You have given to us instruction. You have given to us a testimony of your desire and your will for us and for our salvation here in your word. And we, we pray, O Lord, that as we come to it this morning and as I preach it, that you would be pleased with the words of my mouth and that you would bless the meditations of all of our hearts as we consider it. We ask that you would guide us into your truth and that you would teach us to rejoice in the grace that you have shown us in Christ Jesus particularly as it is displayed for us in the sign and the seal of baptism. We pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it is a a great blessing today to have had the privilege of seeing our sister Tracy Cooper baptized in the triune name of our God. It's a great blessing and it's a great privilege for us to be able to witness such a marvelous event. It truly is a marvelous event. Because what it is, is not merely the application of water and the saying of some rote words, but it is in a real and in a tangible way, a display, visible, tangible display of God's grace demonstrated towards His covenant people. It is a beautiful thing that we have witnessed. It is a reminder not only of the grace that God has shown towards our sister, but it is a reminder of the grace that he has shown to every single one of us in his son. And this morning, I want us then to consider, perhaps in a little bit more detail than we have in the past, what the true significance of this sign, of this seal of baptism actually is. What lay, as it were, at the essence, the heart, the substance of this glorious sign that God has given to His church? Because if we don't understand that, then we will be racked with confusion. We won't really appreciate the beauty of what we have seen taking place. We will instead, perhaps, believe that the water and the word here is some sort of magic wherein somebody is automatically converted to the Lord Jesus. That's not the case, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But on the other end, we could also think that this is something of small importance. We could think that this is not actually something that matters all that much, when in reality, it is tremendously important. This is something that God has given to His church as a gift so that we would be reminded And so that he could again illustrate to us his love 
and his mercy towards his people. And to accomplish that this morning, and I do apologize that my voice is going in and out, by the way. So if you see me drinking water, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to get through this sermon without it sounding like Kermit the Frog is preaching to you. But to accomplish this goal of understanding in a deeper and a more meaningful way what this sign and seal of baptism actually means, I want us to consider the passage which we just read, Romans chapter 6. No doubt if you paid close attention to the reading of the Book of Church Order earlier, you would have noted that much of the language of our book that we use when we baptize someone actually comes directly out of Romans chapter 6. And that's very important. It's very important for us to understand because this chapter gives to us a beautiful uh, exposition in many ways of what baptism means. And yet that being said, as you probably noticed, baptism is not truly the subject of this chapter, not even of the verses we read. Indeed, as no doubt you noticed, the focus of Romans chapter 6 is what has happened to us as we have been united to Jesus Christ. You see, Christ is at the center of Romans chapter 6 just as Christ is at the center of the sign and seal of baptism. And as we consider that truth this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to step back and consider this, that baptism is a sign which preaches, it proclaims to us the substance, the essence of the gospel, and it points us to the significance of that gospel for our Christian lives. Now, I want you to hear that one more time. Baptism is a sign which preaches, and I use that language very intentionally. This is a visible proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which points us to the substance of that gospel, which is Christ himself, and in turn encourages us, points us to the significance which our reception of that gospel has for our day-to-day lives as Christians. That's why Paul, in answer to the question, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound, turns to baptism, which is a rather odd place, we might think, in our own minds for someone to turn. And yet he does it. He does it because he knows, of course, he's the Apostle Paul, that at the heart of the teaching of the doctrine of baptism is not just water, it's not just words, but it's Christ. And that's what I want us to consider this morning as we examine Romans chapter 6 with an eye towards the doctrine of baptism. To do that then, let's begin here in verse 1 as we consider first baptism as a sign of the gospel of Christ. Listen to what we hear at verse 1. Again, remember the context in which we find this saying here. He, he asked the question right in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, why is he asking that question? Well, he's asking that question because of what he's just said back in chapter 5. You'll recall one of his statements there at the end of the chapter. He, he says, now the law came in to increase trespasses, right? But then he goes on, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, 
There's a question in the mind of commentators. Is Paul addressing a real question that earnest Christians had in the Roman church? Were there those who believed after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ preached with all of its freedom and the doctrine of justification by faith, that idea that we are made righteous in Christ Jesus, not by any work of our own, but merely by having faith in the Savior, that did this teaching of the freeness of God's grace then lead some Christians earnestly to think in the church that perhaps what we should do is live lives of sinfulness so that God's grace would abound, so that it would be multiplied, so that it would have an opportunity to be displayed more and more. Now, I personally don't think so. And I don't think so because of many of the teachings that we see here in this chapter. One who has truly been converted to Christ Jesus, who has truly been united to Christ Jesus, has been transformed by the power of the gospel. They've had their whole being transformed and reoriented away from sin and death unto God and life. And, and they wouldn't, I don't think, ask that kind of a question. It's an terribly offensive question to true biblical religion. And so I would go with option number two, which is what many commentators believe Paul is addressing here. And that would be the teaching of Judaizers who have sought to infiltrate and undermine the gospel of Christ in the church at Rome. They have slipped in and they have began to whisper in the ear of the Christians there in Rome, if you follow Paul's teaching, it will lead you to live lives which are unpleasing to God. Now, who would ever say such a thing? Actually, a lot of people would say such a thing. All we have to do is survey briefly the history of the church and perhaps you'll recall, if you know much about the Protestant Reformation, that that was the exact accusation that the Romans, and by that I mean the Roman Catholics as we call them today, I don't like to give them that term Catholic, but the Romanists, the Papists, those who were aligned with the Church of Rome brought against the Protestant Reformers. They said this very thing. They said, if you adopt their understanding of the gospel of Christ, then it will lead you to live lives of ungodliness. You will live in a way that is displeasing unto God. And we see, it's not the first time that that question's been asked, and nor will it be the last time that that question is going to be asked. We see it in Paul's day. We see it at the time of the Reformation. No doubt we see it at times even in our own day. This propensity for people to identify the gospel of free grace in Christ Jesus with license to sin has been so prevalent that it led Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man known to many of you, no doubt, to say at one point that anyone who preaches the freeness of the grace of God clearly in the gospel of Jesus Christ at some point or another is going to be accused of this very thing. They're going to be accused of excusing and allowing sinful behavior. But of course, that's not right. And that's the question, that's the issue that Paul then begins to address as he moves towards throughout this chapter. It begins then, what shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Listen to how he answers that question in verse 2. By no means. By no means. This is an emphatic statement here. 
I actually like the way the KJV applies this text. Maybe perhaps not as faithful to the Greek text as it could be, but, but they grasp something of the idea that Paul is going for here when they translate it, God forbid. God forbid that anyone would ever misunderstand the gospel of Jesus Christ to mean that we can continue to live in sin. God forbid it. May it never be. By no means is this the case. And then he goes on to explain why this isn't the case. How can it, he says, how can it be? How can we who died to sin still live in it? He says there at the end of verse 2. Now listen to what he's said here. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? That's at the root of his argument. But then he shifts, perhaps in a way that many of us, again, would not shift if we were having this same conversation today. He shifts and he begins to speak using the illustration, the sign of Christian baptism. Listen to what he says here. Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now let's think about this for a moment. What is Paul doing here? Again, there are many options. Many throughout the history of the church have simply said, well, what Paul is saying here is that the simple administration of baptism to someone whether that be baptism by immersion, whether it be by sprinkling, whether it be by pouring, whatsoever it might look like, the mere administration of that baptism to a person is sufficient to unite them in a true and living way to the Lord Jesus. It is, therefore, the beginning, really, of their salvation. That's been the view of many. Now, I would ask you this question, is that the option we want to take as we come to this set of verses? I was hoping for some some head-shaking no, but that's okay, that's okay. I'll answer it for you. No, that's not the direction we want to go. And the reason for that is simple. We have to interpret this portion of God's Word in light of all the rest of the portions of God's Word which speak about Christian baptism. And as we do so, we will be reminded that baptism is not so closely connected to salvation that on the one hand, example of the thief on the cross, one who's not baptized cannot be saved. We know that there, right? Remember what happens at that time. The Lord Jesus, as he lay dying on the cross, sees that this thief, as he defends Christ and asks him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, he he then turns and he assures him that he will be with the Father. He will be in paradise with Christ that very day. It's a man who's not been baptized. At least we don't think he's been baptized. It's not so closely tied to salvation that one can't be saved without being baptized. On the other hand, though, it's not so closely tied to salvation that one who has been baptized is automatically saved. How do we know that? Well, we can think about Acts chapter 8. We can think about Simon the magician. 
a man who professes faith and is baptized by the apostles themselves, but then immediately reveals himself to be one who never truly believed the gospel. Instead, he was still in the gall of his bitterness. He was still in his dead spiritual state. Baptism nearly or rather, cannot be said to save someone, and it cannot be said to be so important to salvation that someone can't be saved without being baptized. And therefore, we have to approach this text knowing all of those things, just by way of example from the New Testament. But we also have to approach this text remembering what Paul himself has said in other portions of his epistles. We could think for a moment of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 which, as you know, is my favorite text to go to to talk about baptism and how it relates to the preaching of God's Word. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what does Paul say to all these people who are dividing the church at Corinth? He comes and he, he says that he is glad that he hasn't baptized many of them. And then he goes on to say something rather remarkable. He says in verse 17 of that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. The Apostle Paul very clearly believed that what was central in the church, because it was central in the salvation of sinners, was not baptism, but it was the preaching of the Word through which those who heard it and received it by faith alone would be saved. So we know then, as we survey a number of texts, some of the reasons why we want to reject that first possible view here. Baptism does not automatically save you. It is not meant to be separated from justification by faith alone. So what does it do? That's the bigger question here, isn't it? What does it do? Well, what I want to argue here as we look at this text is that it functions as an illustration. It functions as a sign and a seal it functions as something that points us to the heart of our salvation, to the gospel of Christ. It is not our salvation. It's a sign which points us to our salvation. It is not to be trusted in. It is to, believe, it is to be followed, as you will. It is to be heeded. It is to be understood that it preaches the same gospel which is preached when a man stands in the pulpit and declares to sinners that God has shown grace to them in Jesus Christ. Because what it does is it illustrates salvation through the gospel of Jesus. And that becomes clear to us as we turn and pick up at verses 5 and following. You see, as we pick up at verse 5, you'll note that the language of baptism fades it fades into the background. That doesn't mean it's not significant, but it does mean that it's not fundamental. It fades into the background, and instead of talking about being baptized into Christ Jesus, now we hear this language of being united 
with Christ. Look at what verse 5 says. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What does baptism point us to? It points us to union with the Lord Jesus Christ. A union which comes, fundamentally, through faith in the Savior. That's why we encounter terms in the New Testament like believing into Jesus Christ. Rather strange way to construct things in Greek, and yet it's very intentional. Because it illustrates for us that when we believe in Jesus, we are united to Him. Baptism points us to that truth, that fundamental truth of union with Jesus Christ. And union with Jesus Christ is merely the application of the gospel of Jesus to the believer. It is, to use the language of my outline, the substance of the gospel. And it has two important implications for us here. We see this as we pick up at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What does he say here? First of all, he says that in our union with Jesus Christ, we have died with Christ. And therefore, we are no longer existing in our old self. The old self, he describes here, as being our existence that was enslaved to sin. Our old self has been crucified with Christ. It died. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. If you have been united to Jesus Christ, you have been united to his death. And in his death, you have died. Now think about that for a moment. Baptism points us to the death of Christ and to our death in him. Now, that makes a lot of sense when we start thinking about Jesus' own comments about baptism in his life. For instance, we could think back to the Gospel of Mark. We'll get there eventually, chapter 10, where Jesus says to his disciples when they're having a dispute over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, are you able, he says, to be baptized with the baptism which I will be baptized with? What is he talking about there? He's talking about his death. Are you able to face what I'm going to face? We can think of the language of Galatians chapter 2, which again uses the idea of baptism. They're applying it to Christ, the baptism of Christ, the circumcision of Christ, being used as a way to speak about his death. Baptism points us to his death in twofold manner. It points us first to the reality that in Jesus Christ's death, the sins of God's people are nailed to the cross. So that as Christ dies, he takes the curse for sin. That's very important for us to understand. He has made a substitution for us on the cross. He has paid the penalty for our sin. He who knew no sin has become sin so that we in Him could become the righteousness of God. 
That's one thing that we have to understand. Baptism points us to the death of Christ and it points us to the substitution of Christ. But it also, though, points us to the fact that if we're united to Christ, not only has Christ bared the penalty for our sin, but he has also freed us from the dominion, the reign, the enslavement of sin. And that's what Paul speaks about here. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin, that previous way of existence that we have had as those who were not converted to Christ would be brought to nothing. And so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. But verse 8 continues on to tell us something else that baptism teaches us. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We can bounce back to what we saw in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here we see that same theme picked up again. As Christ has been raised from the dead, he has been raised first, as Paul will tell us in other places, for our vindication, for our justification, as a sign that God has accepted his sacrifice and he has counted him righteous and he has counted, as we're going to see in just a moment, us righteous in him. But it also does something else. It not only has that definitive meaning that we are righteous in Jesus Christ, but it also gives to us the ability to participate in his new resurrection life. In other words, it brings to us spiritual life. And that's what we see Paul zeroing in on here in verse 9. We know that Christ, he says, being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And his conclusion is obvious. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now listen. He's gone through all of this argumentation to make this point, really. This is the answer to that possible question that was raised back in verse 1, isn't it? Think about what he's saying. He's saying, is it possible for someone who is truly a believer who is truly a Christian, who has been united to the death and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ to continue sinning so that grace may abound? And the answer is found here. No. Because in Christ Jesus, you have died to sin. And in Christ Jesus, you have been resurrected to newness of life. The implication here is very clear. So you must consider yourself dead to sin. And you must consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
the substance of the gospel to which baptism points is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in his death, and in his resurrection to save sinners and to free them from the dominion of sin. You've got to understand that so that you don't see the sign as the substance. You see, the water that we see sprinkled or poured upon someone in baptism is not meant to indicate that somehow God has just saved that person, but instead that water is meant to point us to the reality that God saves people in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's meant to proclaim to us, to point to us where the grace of God is to be found. And it's to be found only in the Savior. And it's to be received only by faith in Him. Now let me say to you this morning, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to understand that everything we've seen this morning in the baptism and in the proclamation of the Word is seeking to call you to repent of your sins, to have faith in Jesus Christ, and to thereby be united to the only one who can bring you salvation. Baptism itself is a proclamation of the grace of God to sinners. If you're here and you've never received that forgiveness, that grace that God offers to sinners freely, then I would call you now to do so. To come and to take hold of the Savior as He set forth to you here in the Word of God, but also even in the sign of His grace to His people. But if you're here this morning and you're a believer, there is really untold application for us here in this image, this sign, this illustration of the gospel of Jesus. And that's where we see the Apostle Paul going here in verses 12 and following. He picks up, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now, listen to what he says there. He's just got done saying sin no longer has dominion over you. You no longer are enslaved. You no longer are snared by the power of sin. And therefore, Christian, since you are free from the power of sin, do not act like sin is still in charge of your life. Do not live out of accord with what is true of you in Jesus Christ. Do not continue on sinning. Continue giving in to those bosom sins, those favorite sins that you have. Do not continue to live in immorality. Do not continue as if you have not been crucified with Jesus Christ, when in reality, if this is true of you, you have. Do not live as if you have not died to sin, if you have. Understand what is true of you in Christ and apply What is true of you in Christ to your own life? Do not let sin continue to reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Now let's just think about what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here. He's telling us that if you are a believer here today, you've truly had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've truly been united to the Savior, you have the power to kill sin in your life. 
You have the power. Too many Christians don't believe that. Too many Christians live as if they are still ensnared and enslaved to their sin nature. But you've got to understand, friends, that sin no longer has power over you. That means that through reading God's Word, through prayer, through meditation upon God's Word, and through killing your sin, as Paul calls us to do, in many places here included, you can overcome your sin. Now, there's been times in my life where I knew that truth theologically, but I had a really hard time believing it experientially. Let's say that. I knew what the Word of God taught, that I as a believer had been freed from the power of sin, and yet I was so entangled in sin that I began to doubt the truth of what God is telling us here in these verses. And I want to say to you, that may be where you're at this morning. You may be here, and I can tell because I can look around and I can see the eyes I can see the faces. I can tell that every single one of you at this very moment can think of something that you want to put to death, that you are struggling to put to death. That's true of us all, isn't it? We all know how enticing sin can be. But what I want to say to you this morning, friend, even if you have been struggling with many years to put something away, is that there is power there is power in Christ Jesus that enables you to kill your sin and to live unto righteousness in Him. That's the first implication which Paul's teaching here has for the believer. You have the power and you have the ability to kill your sin. He goes on, verse 13, do not present your members, meaning the members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do not use your bodies that have been united to Jesus Christ. Note that. See that very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We don't have time to go and expound that text, although you can tell by how much I like to talk, I would love to do that. Our bodies have been united to Jesus our mortal bodies, which means not only are we free from the power of sin, not only are we able to live in newness of spiritual life, but one day those who are united to Jesus Christ are not just going to stand up out of a spiritual grave, but they're going to stand up out of a liberal grave. This points us forward to the reality that one day we who are united to Jesus Christ will be raised up with him and restored but I'm getting sidetracked, so let me get back to what I was talking about here. We see that we've been freed from the power of sin, but we've also been called here not only to not use our bodies for unrighteousness, but we've been called here to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And our members, our bodies, to God as instruments 
for righteousness. And sometimes we use this language of improving our baptism. Somewhat archaic language, I think. And I arrive at that opinion because almost no one I know in Reformed churches seems to have any idea what that means. <laughs> well, let me tell you what it means. It means that as we look to our baptisms, and as our baptisms point us to the reality that we've been united to Jesus Christ, we are called by our baptisms to live lives of righteous obedience to God. That's what it means. When you hear it in the Confession, the Catechism, improve your baptism, it simply means remember that you who have been united to Jesus Christ are called to live lives of obedience to God's law. You are called to live in the midst of God's church as those who are faithful to do righteousness, to live with your brothers and sisters in such a way that you build them up, that you encourage them, that you walk beside them, that you bear their burdens. You were called to be those who worship God faithfully. You use your bodies in the service of God's people, even as we have this morning, to sing praises to God as He calls us to time and time again in the Word of God to come together and to confess our faith in Jesus, to come together and to provide for one another. If we wanted to, we could go over to Acts chapter 2 and we could see, we could see what happened right after Pentecost. You'll be reminded when the Spirit is poured out upon the believers there in Jerusalem and they cause mass panic really in the city. People are like, what's going on here? And Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel of Jesus and men and women are converted. You'll remember what is the thing, the immediate result of that. Well, the immediate result of it is that they enter into the church of God and they devote themselves to the apostolic teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers, to supporting one another financially, and to worshiping God in the temple. You see, the gospel has implications for us. It has implications for us as simple as this. If you have believed in that gospel, if you have had that gospel applied to your life, if you have been united to Jesus Christ, you have also been united to His people. That means that if you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, there is no Christian who is not a member of a church. In the New Testament, there is no Christian who is not supporting other brethren in the church. In the New Testament, it is very clear that the expectation of one who professes faith publicly is that they live that faith out in the body of Christ. They are freed from the dominion of sin personally to live lives of personal obedience to live lives of personal righteousness, but they are called as they are united to Christ to live that life of union with Christ in union with His people. And that's one of the great delights of seeing what we saw this morning, of seeing 
someone brought, not only here to stand before us and testify to us of the faith that they have as an individual, but of the desire they have, having been united to Christ, to be united with his people in obedience to the example of the New Testament. Baptism is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful display. It's a wonderful sign and confirmation that what we hear preached in the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. It points us to Christ and His work for us on the cross. It points us to the reality that if we have faith in Him and are united to Him, we're freed from our sin and we're alive to God in righteousness. And it calls every single one of us, whether you've been baptized or not, really, to believe the gospel of Christ, to have faith every day in the Savior, to look to Him for strength, to come to Him for salvation. And if you are a believer, to live in light of what is true of you in Him. It is a sign which preaches the substance of the gospel and points us to the significance of the gospel for our lives. As we leave this place, let us remember this. Let us be those who seek to obey God's words, to rejoice in His grace, and for those of us who have been baptized, to improve our baptisms, that we might work for the glory of God and the good of His people in this world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning delighted at the privileges that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus. We thank you, O Father, that you have united us to yourself and that as you have united us to yourself through the work of the Savior, bringing union with him and communion with you, you have also, Father, united us to our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we might be those who together walk in this world seeking to encourage and bless each other, seeking to worship you together with joyful hearts, and also seeking to be those who witness to the grace that you have shown us in our place in which you have put us. We pray, Father, now that you would bless your people this day, that you would guide and direct us, and that you might be glorified in us. We ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.